Welcome to the Highway to Well. Today we're talking with Mark Young. Mark is the Director of Admissions and Recruitment at UWSP, but he's also a community organizer, and his voice has become an important one in advocacy. In this special episode, Mark and I will dig into what it means to do the work and understand privilege, disenfranchisement, and racism. But we'll also get to a critical point, and that is, what can we do to raise young men and teach them to be open, vulnerable, and avoid emotional negligence, and how in doing so we can set the stage for men to be more empathetic, caring, and respectful. Thank you again for listening. Let's get on the highway to well. Welcome back to the Highway to Well. Today we're talking talking to Mark Young, who is the Director of Admissions and Recruitment at UWSP, but he also has become a significant voice in our community and is in the at the forefront of bringing up important conversations in Central Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and supporting our movement to try to make our culture and our community more inclusive and open. And um, Mark was born and raised in Detroit and has spent most of his adult life here in Stevens Point. So, Mark, I want to say, first of all, thank you for joining me again here on the Highway to Well. And I want you to talk to me about what it's like to come from the metropolis of Detroit to Stevens Point and to be doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, uh, Derek, first, thanks for having me um, back. Really uh, excited about this second conversation. It feels like uh, since the first to now, uh, it, it feels like it's been eons with all the things that we've seen change over the last couple of, of weeks. Um, but yeah, uh, Mark Young, Director of Admissions and Recruitment for UW Stevens Point. And to be honest, Derek, uh, as a kid growing up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, from my neighborhood and my environment, it still uh, strikes me as uh, surprising when I offer my title uh, to folks in the introduction because I never thought, I never saw myself being here. Um, and so uh, growing up in Detroit, Michigan, um, born and raised through and through uh, from what uh, folks in Detroit like to call the slumps uh, or the, the hood, so to speak, um, you know, uh, just my, my mom, uh, I have both parents in my life. My mom was, uh, more primary, uh, in my life. Uh, spent more time at, at her house and man, she was, she is a phenomenal woman. Uh, made a ton of sacrifices for myself and, and my sister, uh, Destiny, uh, who's older and my younger brother, Aaron. Uh, and just made sure that although we may have wanted for things, we never needed for things. We didn't have the greatest, but we had, uh, really good. Uh, growing up and she never let us know when we were struggling. Uh, and so if I could, uh, hopefully be half of the parents, uh, that she, she, uh, was to us and continues to be, uh, I think I'll check a lot of boxes for my hopefully future kid. Uh, navigating Detroit is, is interesting, man. Um, you can get swallowed up very quickly, just as you could in any other metropolitan area, whether it's drugs, gangs, violence, um, uh, and, and even, you know, uh, uh, crime. Um, so 
my mother did a great job uh, as well as uh, our, our extended family and my father did a great job of making sure that we stayed on the straight and narrow for the most part. Now, we were still kids, but, you know, uh, kept us pretty close and uh, showed us the way um, because of the respect that my parents had in their in their neighborhoods. Uh, folks kept us out of um, uh, uh, out of uh, goodness gracious, um, because folks respected my parents, they kept. Uh, our our family away from uh, the negative things that our community offered. And so uh, fast forward to high school, um, I uh, played at uh, played football at Southfield Lathrop High School. My mother drove us uh, about 30 minutes every morning uh, to get us out of our neighborhood environment um, because we knew that it had to be something a little bit better uh, out there for us and, and that we were on different trajectories. Uh, and so I finished out uh, playing football at, at Lathrop uh, and uh, initially, I was uh, headed to Eastern Michigan, or excuse me, Western Michigan. And um, then a buddy of mine came back, and he was currently at uh, UW Stevens Point, introduced me to the university. Um, but by that time, uh, I was halfway through the summertime. I applied to UWSB. I actually got denied uh, first uh, coming to UWSB, and I think that's so ironic. And it, and we'll circle back here in a little bit, but got denied to UWSB, uh, didn't have the grades to get in. And so I went to a JUCO or junior college out in Minnesota, in Cloquet, Minnesota. You probably have never heard of it. Uh, it's near Duluth. Uh, so it's way up there. It is cold. It's a different kind of cold in, in, in Cloquet, Minnesota. Uh, didn't do much for fun except go to Walmart. That was our Friday night attraction. And um, Played football there for, for a couple months and then transitioned over to UW Stevens Point. And boy, was I in for a culture shock. Uh, to be honest, I had never seen so many white people uh, in one place <laughs> until I got to Stevens Point, Wisconsin. I thought I knew what diversity and inclusion was until I was at in um, Cloquet, Minnesota, which is on a Native American reservation, and then transitioned over to, to Stevens Point where I was one of very few uh, students of color or underrepresented minority students. Uh, and so navigating this system uh, was challenging uh, for, for myself. Um, not just because it's, it's a very complex system, but because my mother uh, nor my father had ever been to college. And so really they didn't know how to support me other than just encouraging me to, to stick it out and that you're built different. You're built to navigate these systems and overcome adversity. Uh, played football here, had a great career, didn't ha walk away with uh, as many wins as I wanted to, uh, nor as many touchdowns, but I learned far more than X's and O's. Uh, got really introduced to, to diversity and what that meant. And one of the reasons I got involved in recruitment was because uh, my mother told me that I, I'm not going to let you complain about things that you can change. Uh, and so I got involved with uh, my mentor and, uh, you know, really started writing the story from there. Um, after graduation, I was hired uh, at UW Stevens Point as an admissions counselor. And over the last seven years, have just continued to grow in my role, uh, not just at the university, but as a community member um, and now serve as director of admissions and recruitment. Um, but also doing uh, some other things in the community. And as you mentioned, uh, kind of being a voice. Uh, uh, whether it's in our, our local politics and local government, uh, serving on uh, different committees or within our athletic program here at UW Stevens Point, or even uncovering policies uh, here uh, in our admissions uh, and working with a team of folks at the university to make sure that 
the university remains uh, accessible and equitable for all students uh, to UW Stevens Point. And I think because of uh, the lens in which we view things through uh, in the admissions office, we've been able to see some incredible results uh, in the last year with just an increase of uh, over 100 underrepresented minority students uh, in, in one year to the university uh, and now working on uh, keeping them here uh, and retaining this talent. So, yeah, that's kind of me in, 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 in a five-minute intro. Well, I, I think you're, you know, I, having lived here and, and, and with um, my wife working in there too, I, I know the benefit of what you're, what you bring to helping expand the population and the, the kind of people that look at point as a possible place to go to college and, and how that matters to the diversity of a college environment. And so I applaud your work there and, I want to, I want to take a couple steps back. So like just a few months ago, a hundred years ago, it feels like, and we were, we were watching as protests were going on around the country and growing and the impulse to be involved in the movement to try to bring to light a lot of, um, a lot of wrongness that we felt like was going on around the country. And, and you were, you were one of those leaders and advocates in this community and you started a, a set of Zoom meetings to have conversations and to grow our ability to connect with each other and talk about our, our, our experiences. So to get beyond the academics of what's going on and, and to not spend too much time talking about philosophy of, or the development of history, but to get to the personal experience of what it is that it feels like to be um, marginalized, to be overlooked, to be disenfranchised. And so we started a set of meeting and out of that experience, so I, I want to, I want you to go back and I know in, in context, it feels like forever ago. And we've been through a lot and we're sitting here now and I know we're recording this while we're waiting for votes to be tabulated in our presidential election. And there's a lot of, um, excitement and energy but also anxiety and PTSD from 2016 that a lot of people that are, are voting and hoping for democratic closure still anxiously awaiting just the certification of the results. And then you have um, the Republicans arguing about a lot of misinformation and, and, and things that are um, meant to like delegitimize the voting process, which which is in and of itself another statement that um, goes back to the heart of those conversations we were having back in the summer. Um, and so what, what have you, or I guess in two parts, you know, what, where did that idea come from to start these community conversations? And, and I know since then there's a lot of ideas about like what steps might we need to take next? So I want you to talk about, first of all, how that process went and what you felt like you were you were seeing and helping us achieve as a community but then also i want to i want you to talk about what it means to do the work so and that phrase gets tossed around a lot about do the work and and i want you to tell me from your experience and and being a black male in a white community and, and all the work that you're doing is to help is to help explain when we say do the work what are we talking about 
Yeah. Yeah, man, that is a loaded question. Uh, I don't know if we have enough time to really unpack the entire thing, but I'll do my best. Uh, the, the town hall conversations uh, that, that my wife and I uh, hosted, co-hosted, uh, was really started by a friend of ours. She, she came to us and she said, listen, I don't know what we need to do, but I know we need to talk about it. Uh, and so we, we kind of worked through uh, what we know best as millennials. And we're like, okay, let's start with social media. Uh, and so with my wife being a creative, she kind of organized a, a, a social media campaign where folks would hold up a sign just acknowledging, you know, where they were uh, at that given time uh, with the social unrest that our, our country uh, was seeing, uh, whether it was uh, the, the murders being captured on film or um, uh, people, uh, black women being murdered in their sleep um, and, and, and just the divide that our country was seeing uh, in the rationalization of what, what was going on. Uh, and so we did the social media campaign. Uh, and then following that, uh, we hosted a conversation. Uh, the premise of the conversation was, let's create a safe space so that people can come and share their experiences, learn, understand, ask questions, and li- listen empathetically. Um, w- there was no judgment. Um, we welcome folks on both sides of the aisle, uh, and even folks that were in between and, and deadlocked in the middle who didn't know what to do. They just knew that what they were feeling was uncom- uncomfortable. And so we, we hosted a discussion and we talked about a range of topics, whether it was racism or uh, oppression or white privilege and what that means, um, uh, education, uh, police reform, um, and really how our how our country or how we can individually uh, take small and tangible steps to make a difference in our everyday lives with our circle of influence or at a greater scale. Uh, as we regressed from that conversation, we noticed that there's so much to talk about and that the conversation is so dense that we actually needed to, to zero in. And what better do I know other than edu- education? Uh, and so the second time around, we invited uh, some, some prominent colleagues in the field of education uh, to come and talk about how we could reform education. And because really that's where a lot of our ideas are, are rooted uh, in is either what we learn in school or what we're conditioned to believe is true from our family and our upbringing. Uh, and so we talked about uh, all the way from adolescence through college and how we can um, uh, decolonize education and how we can find resources that don't just speak from a Eurocentric point of view uh, and where uh, white people are painted as the saviors uh, of our country and the builders uh, and the only builders of our country. Uh, and so including others in the narrative of how we've arrived in 2020. Uh, I, I honestly probably want to scrape 2020 out the history books and just put an asterisk and say, see index <laughs> or, or write your own, uh, write in what, what you think happened, uh, because it almost feels like a comic book series or, um, you know, a, uh, uh, kind of trash TV with, with what we've watched transpire over the last year. Um, and so, that's really where, where the conversations uh, started. And we had some very, very good conversations. And those continued into our school districts 
uh, we actually have one of those speakers that uh, will actually be a part of the UWSP speaker series here on campus. Um, her name is Silver Daniels out of Detroit, Michigan, and she's going to talk about how to decolonize education. Um, and so when, when a, a lot of the conversation uh, was, was good, but what we do know is that there is still work to be done. And so the phrase do the work, right? You can talk all day long. You can listen empathetically, but if you walk away and don't do anything to enact change, then you're actually, you know, just um, uh, encouraging the system to continue a status quo or as is. And so doing the work is, if I can say it in the simplest form, is taking the new information that you have and acting on it. Um, and so whether that's personally uh, within your family or within your organization uh, or your community. And so it really depends on each person and how far they want to take it. Um, but I would, would argue that every one person needs to look at any system uh, or, or industry uh, that they're in or, or um, uh, uh, industry that they're in uh, to, to see how can we make this a more inclusive and welcoming environment for all people. Uh, and so I've started to do that uh, in our local government with being on the diversity and inclusive committee uh, here within uh, the office of admissions, uh, even in, in tough situations with my family and holding them accountable as well as holding myself accountable, uh, making sure that I check my bias. Uh, that's something that's free. It doesn't require a lot of energy, but it requires truth telling uh, to oneself is checking your bias uh, and making sure that that you remove any bias that you have based on your lived experiences or interactions with other people. Um, and, and looking at how you spend your time, how you spend your money, uh, what you're willing to um, overlook or look by just because you like a brand or, or an organization. And so you can really get to the micro or macro level, depending on how comfortable you are with, with being truthful with yourself. Um, so that's kind of where, um, the, the term do the work uh, for me resonates the most is uh, just taking the information that you now have and acting on it. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, I love what you said. So for us, maybe 2020 is going to be this year that becomes an asterisk in a lot of ways. So, I mean, between COVID and the amount of, of social, awareness building like you know i mean we've needed to walk through a lot of these steps to open up some conversations and understand the symbols and meaning behind our communication so not just communication in general but how did we get to this point where this worldview is being espoused and i think one of the best examples that we will probably dissect for some time is this this um the, the contrasting worldview. So you say that, uh, you know, like the 1619 project and understanding information, just open to understanding that there are multiple interpretations and then going through, do the, like, like you said, like do the work on learning, just relearn something that maybe was positioned a certain way. And you find out that that's not true or that's not the true story. That's not how this actually happened. And so we go through the process of learning and then you have a president that comes out and writes an executive 
declaration that we're going to start a 1776 project because we need to study the actual American history. And you know that that's code and you know that the, those, that's a dog whistle statement for something that is directly related to how important something like the 1619 project has become in terms of our, our sharing and our knowledge base growing and expanding and, and opening a lot of people's eyes that maybe weren't open or going back and relearning in a different context where we are today and how we should learn our, our histories. And, and even for myself, I, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And now we're learning a lot about the racial unrest in the 20s and the destruction of Black Wall Street, which was a part of our history growing up. And 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 I, I know talking with other people that are from Tulsa, some of us, this was covered in, in our schooling or by our families, but we there wasn't enough information and then there were contrasting points of view about what actually happened and we're discovering that 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 it was far worse than what history has led us to believe which is is should not be shocking in any way but it's it's important that we relearn what happened so that we can make sure it doesn't happen again and then we build on what we need to do to to learn how that and I think deep down is learn how that gets communicated and learn how that story gets, that evolves into worldviews where now we have these, you know, a president comes out and starts talking about what is really American history, which is disenfranchising a lot of people. But I think that's the point of what he's trying to do. And so it's hard, I think, when we talk about doing the work, but, you know, that is, that is exactly at the core of it is understanding that and being able to critically analyze a lot of these situations and cut through what the media is saying or cut through what it, what we what maybe even our leadership sometimes is saying and look at the factual evidence and then ask ourselves why is this happening why is this happening and that i think has been a there's been a, an a there has been an awakening of that question but here we are, you know, a few months later, and I know you and I talk about it, like it feels like a world ago when we had um, George Floyd, um, post-George Floyd unrest across the country that was a, that was perfectly um, situated in most places to help us open our eyes to this and say, yeah, this is exactly what we should be doing. This is what people, this is the exact response that should be happening. And so let's not call this unrest. Let's not call this in, in like, you know, some, some people will try to position it as rioting or, you know, and I don't want to go down that path here in our conversation because we could end up talking about that forever. But I mean, we could be allowed to have that expression of, of what we want out of our world and that we expect it to be a better place. And how do we make that happen is so important. So, and in your conversations help us break through privilege and disenfranchisement to understand what it means to have a different experience and and that we can grow from that and understand when someone talks about something like like what we were talking about before we got on the call too is the whole concept of voter suppression is to realize that there are we we need to understand when someone says that what are we really talking about we're not we're not talking about illegal votes passed. We're talking about 
polling places being shut down in communities or limitations on the process of putting in barriers to just simply voting, which is the, which is the, the most important American activity that anyone can do is, is voting. And so we're, we're learning, but there are these, you know, when we talk about doing the work is, is I get worried about which, which are people, what messages are people latching onto and, and what, how can we continue to break through those barriers so that we can have healthy conversations to make things happen? Yeah. Well, I, man, uh, one of, one of the, uh, terms or excuse me, uh, one of the phrases that I've heard recently, uh, with being in a book club and other, um, conversations, uh, with different, different folks is, uh, how tired they are from just the learning of, um, the learning of new terms and new concepts. And, and I wonder if that fatigue is associated with the reality of potentially perpetuating a cycle of oppression, of, um, of, uh, exclusion of other people. Uh, and so it's interesting when I, when I talk to friends and colleagues and, and they are now taking it upon themselves to learn about different, different, uh, concepts, uh, and learn history and perspectives of other people. They almost feel, uh, drained and, and exhausted, uh, because their world has been rocked. Um, what they've known to believe and been conditioned to believe, um, is now uh, at times can be the total opposite of, of what they know, uh, what they've known. So uh, we cannot afford as, as a society and, and surely as underrepresented folks uh, for allies um, in, in white communities to be exhausted at this point. Um, it's, it's, I always find it interesting when folks will tell me they're exhausted from the last six months and, you know, I'll pose a question, man, I wonder what it's like to have to live this every single day. Um, and so do you even at this time have the right to be exhausted? Is that a phrase that you can honestly say when when you open it up and, and look beyond yourself? Um, uh, is that a fair statement? And so I, I'm very appreciative that uh, many folks are joining the conversation. But what I'm finding is that a lot of people are maybe doing it for the wrong reasons, which is self. You know, I want to do better merely for my own moral compass. Or it's trendy, right? I'll put a black square on my Instagram. So I, I feel good about, you know, making a contribution and standing up to, to uh, racism or, or, or social uh, injustice. Um, and, uh, and then the, the third kind of nuance is just being, you know, fatigued. And so my charge to folks is, you know, continue to do this work. Oftentimes it is a lonely path. Um, and especially depending on the community that you're within, you might not find a lot of allies. Um, but the work that, uh, is, is associated, um, with, um, in, inclusion and, and a focus on diversity. Uh, just makes us all better. It makes for a better world. It, it, it levels out the playing field when we think about equal, equality. Um, and, and even when you think about equity, uh, and even disparities, uh, between pay 
and opportunities within our community, you'll find a lot of that being driven by race um, and, and implicit bias. So the work that we're, we've done thus far uh, has been phenomenal, but do we have an incredibly long way to go as a country? Uh, yeah. And, and it, it, it will um, exceed our lifetimes by, by many moons uh, at this rate. Um, because there is such a, a divide in our country and how we digest um, racism, how we digest inclusion, uh, even the, the, the difference between someone who's red versus someone who, who is blue, someone who is a Democrat versus someone who is a Republican. Um, you know, I, I'm finding that people are getting wrapped up in following a person than they are their own moral views. Um, and saying that they, they can't align, they will overlook antics because they align with the policy. Um, and I always will beg, where does humanity fall into to, to your allegiance to a particular person uh, or party? Uh, and so that does worry me a little bit, and especially when, when I circle back to the um, to people being energized or, or fatigued. But uh, I think we've built um, at least some momentum to start uh, where people are are initially committing more people are initially committing to this work. Yeah, I think you're it, this there's a lot of these issues that are woven into, you know, when we talk about racism and privilege and disenfranchisement and, and the impacts that, that both have on everything from <clears throat> um, job opportunity to health access. And we, in our field, in the wellness field, we're often looking at, social determinants of health and the disparity of health. And then if you take somewhat of a historical approach too, like we, I was in a, listening to a presentation last week at, an, at a national conference about, so in our, our, in our field of wellness, what, where should our focus be? What can we do to make, and make a place better? So wherever our outreach is, what should we be focused on? And we talked a lot about the relationship between these social determinants of health. And we overlapped a map with where slavery was most widely um, um, used in, in, the, in the marketplaces and around the country. So it's kind of a map that shows the site where there were more slaves. And then you overlay a map now of where the, there's health disparities and they look a lot alike. And so we go in between there, like how did we get from point A to point B? And then we start making a list of affordable and safe housing, food disparities and food deserts. We talk a lot about that in the wellness field. And we also talk about access to education and then access to healthcare. And you start multiplying these and not one is a root cause, but the combination of all of those create unhealthy environments. Right. And we can change those. We yeah. can change those. And if we change those, then maybe, just maybe, we remedy some of the things that we're, we're, oh, we're in the streets now openly talking about. And maybe we change those cultures. And, and, I, and I know that's a, that is definitely a pie-in-the-sky approach, and I'm an optimist at heart. But if we can, if we can 
revisit the context when we're talking about issues and really be critical about how we're breaking those down and add analysis that can say, we're in this situation because of these factors and all of these factors combined, then it helps to create that understanding and that, that new baseline from where we should start. And you know, Derek, you raise a, you raise a really good point because um, oftentimes what I hear in society right now is, well, that happened 400 years ago. I didn't own any slaves. I'm not a racist. And so folks are more focused on the destination instead of understanding the full journey. And I think when you understand the full journey, you know, it makes the destination for everybody a little bit sweeter, right? Um, and, and that's much of what you've talked about. And I, I think over time, there's, there's been, uh, culturally at least, uh, a stigma surrounding uh, healthcare, right? Um, we know that there are issues within uh, black and brown communities uh, related to obesity and um, mental health. Um, but when you look within our communities and you have those conversations about it, those aren't conversations that are being had in, in the households, or at least surely not in my family. Um, depression, not a thing, right? Depression was, you're just sad, you'll get over it. Um, anxiety, you're just nervous. Stop being timid. Get over it. Be a man. Don't cry. Toughen up. Don't be a girl. Right. Uh, and so talking about some of those uh, toxic terms and, and expanding that out to toxic masculinity, uh, a lot of that, you know, I'm sure you could tie to our, our health care um, because we are not seeking the, the, the care that we need uh, to really be well. Uh, and I'm speaking generally here, um, which is never a good thing, but uh, from my interactions, um, that, that is what I've seen in, in my upbringing uh, when you talk about health. Yeah, I, we, we should probably set up a whole another podcast to just talk about, about toxic masculinity. But I, I did want to touch on that because you and I, we overlap in our work on raising and coaching and raising young men in an environment to teach them to be better. And part of that involves respect and integrity which is gets to the points that we want kids to grow up and have the ability to work together with others that are different than them. Just at a core level, respect, be inclusive, and have integrity in what you're doing. And if you do that, then you, you should come out fine. You should. However, then we overlay that with talk like you said, like toxic, toxic masculinity. And what are some of those issues when we're talking about the output of toxic masculinity, like violence, sexual aggression, um, and a lack of understanding of, of decency and respect for, for women or, or anyone that you're in a relationship with as well. But those are critical issues in our communities and with the people that we work with. And that, that, is that transcends race because it's the same toxic masculinity issues are prevalent in white, young white males. And we see that and we see what happens when they're, when we grow young men into twenties and thirties, when they get into their twenties and thirties and they haven't, they haven't addressed these issues and what are the, what are the results of those? And, you know, we can get into the statistics of, of white violence too. And, and then in, in the black community, in the stigmas around mental health and, and 
some of the violence and aggression too. It's these are things that overlap and transcend racial groups, but they're all part of this big picture of raising young men to not be um, products of that toxic masculinity and to perpetuate that environment. And so I, I know I applaud you know, you know the work that you've done there as well too. Well, I appreciate that, and I know you have not only uh, you're doing incredible work, and it's it's being recognized. Uh, far and wide. So kudos to you, man, for, for the impacts you're having on our community and young men. Um, and, and just one quick point here. Uh, I would argue that if we as a society do a better job of raising uh, young men um, and being intact with their emotions, uh, learning how to respect women, being inclusive and um, living with integrity and being communicative about their emotions, we could potentially see a sharp decline in crime and the impacts and the trauma associated with crimes committed against other people. Uh, so I would love uh, for more social workers to be in the schools to help, you know, students unpack their emotions. Uh, from an early adolescent standpoint, helping students engage and, and make sense of their emotions uh, instead of just uh, suppress their emotions and not really talk about what it is that they're going through. Um, so I, that's just a, a quick tidbit tid, that, that I would love to see happen and I, I hope to see happen in the next couple of years. I could, I could not disagree more with that statement. And I think what at the heart of that is did you say you, you could not disagree more? No, I, I, I don't. I would not disagree oh, at all with that. I was statement. like, oh my yeah. goodness, Eric, I'm looking. I know. I know. I'm looking at my notes, so I, uh, I'm skipping past. <laughs> I mean, that is at the corner. That's the cornerstone of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that men. The the question is really, I think, comes down to, and when we talk about teaching them to be all these things is to understand that being vulnerable is okay. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you can get a young man to be vulnerable, you start to get to empathy. You start to get to compassion. You start to get to a integrity and, and respect because the ego of young men is usually that wall that needs to be broken down. And that is a question of vulnerability. And no one... You know, we're raised in, you and I have talked about this in our upbringing and being youth sports. That's the last place that you're supposed to be vulnerable. Right. But it's the one place where you learn most of your life lessons. Mm -hmm. So if you can incorporate, and I'm such a strong advocate of youth sports, that if we can, if we can create environments of vulnerability in youth sports, if we just focus on creating better environments of vulnerability and teaching especially young boys to not be emotionally negligent and, I love to, that. Control, and to control and understand how to manage their emotion. Mm -hmm. And in, a, in that environment in sports, the beauty is you get an immediate result. Mm -hmm. Like you're performing and you have to make a play or you have to defend someone or you have to go and attack and score. Like you don't have time to really go through the whole process and test 
and re, you know you, you train you, you you get the immediate results so you're able to train immediately in that environment so you're not waiting for a test result on whether or not you're vulnerable you either are or you're not right. so and that emotional negligence is something that is on on all of us to change and and we all i think i think we could probably talk to anyone that was probably coached in in your now we're in like our 30s and 40s and we go back and look at our youth sports days and we all probably have a common story of being run into the ground or you know not showing fear or not showing you know anger or not showing that vulnerability and we all look back and we're like that's just not right mm -hmm. not, that's not a healthy place and so for us, I think it's cultivating those cultures where men are not emotionally negligent, right? And they're open to being vulnerable, and we and we coach them in that process because it's not easy, mm -hmm. and it's not like you can just flip a switch and say, "Okay, everyone's time to be vulnerable." You're <laughs> you have to walk you have to walk every single kid that you're working with or young person that you're working with down that path, understanding that it's all okay. Yeah, like, I'm I'm here for you. Yeah. I, and so for me, that's been the cornerstone of, of what I've been trying to do in my coaching um, for a while now and trying to create those those environments so that we can work to get kids to a better place. Mm -hmm. And along the way, we're going to check off our empathy boxes. We're going to check off our respect. We're going to check off our integrity because the kid that I'm coaching was vulnerable and open to that. Yeah. And if that's the wall I can break down, I'm going to. And right. I, I love that term or phrase, emotional uh, uh, negligence, um, because oftentimes in sports, yeah, that's what we do. Uh, we, ne we neglect it sometimes. Um, but I, you, you raise a very good point in making sure that um, each one of the, the students or kids that you're working with um, is, is approached with the vulnerability discussion uh, individually, because everybody has different walls up, right? Uh, and it's based on, uh, you know, what they learn in their family and, and what they've watched and, and believe is, uh, masculinity. So yeah, taking, taking that approach, uh, is that one-on-one -on -one approach is important. Um, and vulnerability is a, uh, is a trait that's found in uh, some of the most prominent leaders, um, with, Acknowledging that, hey, I don't know everything. And yes, I will make mistakes, uh, but I am coachable. I am teachable uh, and I'm ready to learn. So I, I talk about that with my team, that vulnerability often. Um, and the, the vulnerability really sometimes uh, allows for disclosure rather than discovery. Uh, and I think that disclosure opens you up to, okay, well, let's talk about this and, and really unpack what it means. Yeah. And that's, that's the trait like if we can create better environments where young people are learning that then they're they enter this workforce or they enter their organization or they graduate from school with those skill sets intact mm -hmm. and they're not they're not we're not relearning them as adults in a hostile environment we have hopefully created better environments from the start to have those conversations yeah yeah, very yeah. true. So, Mark, I want to ask as we as we start to wrap up here, I, I I feel like we should have like a whole we should have just a series where we just chat and just throw <laughs> stuff out there and keep talking about it. But I do want I do want to ask here to kind of wrap up this this podcast is what so 
there is a lot of information and disinformation. There are going to be a lot of arguments, and I hope that that's not the case, but I don't want to anticipate that it won't be the case either because we have to be resilient and ready for what might be happening here within, like I said, we're recording this while we're waiting for votes to be counted. Right. So there, it's going to be tumultuous. It's going to be hairy. It's going to be difficult. What can we do to stay focused, stay on the path, and be better in our in our communities, in our organizations, and in our relationships to be open to a changing world? And how can we help be stewards of that? Yeah. So I think the, the a critical component of our ability to move forward together is to first listen. Listen to understand instead of listening to respond. I think we've gotten into an environment in our society that most people are listening to, to respond and push their opinion and their ideas on other people. And if you don't agree or you don't understand, then, well, you're just an idiot, right? Uh, and so listen to understand, ask more questions than you provide information. Uh, and that's one, one route that I've been trying to go is to, to ask questions to understand. Um, and then take some time to process or acknowledge when you maybe need to step away from a discussion because you're too emotionally charged. But then as you leave that discussion, process it, you know, with, uh, an unbiased mind. Um, and really understand like, okay, what is it, what is it that we just talked about? Um, and am I, uh, agreeing with their thoughts and ideas or do I differ? And, and why do I differ? And so really beg the question within yourself and your own thoughts. Um, hold yourself and others accountable, uh, and do it in a way I, that's out of care and not out of calling someone out or, uh, diminishing someone because they don't know or they don't understand uh, how or what they said was inaccurate or incorrect or oppressive. Um, uh, finally, uh, kind of take action like we talked about. Um, and not everybody's going to change the world, but what you can do, in my opinion, is change the world around you. And so whether that's uh, within yourself and, and your thought process, um, how you spend your time and your resources, take the opportunity to learn. And so being accountable uh, and not just relying on, well, I got black friends and he told me his story. And so I'm good. I check my diversity and inclusion box, but actually go out to find resources and podcasts and watch even movies. If you're not a reader um, to really learn and, and understand and, and view the world through a, a try and view the world with different lenses on. And I think with more information that you learn and take in, the more your lens in which you view the world should develop, right? You, sh you should no longer be committed to, you know, just what you've known over the last 30 years. Your lens should develop as you learn more perspectives and you hear more stories from others uh, and you hold yourself accountable uh, and start to see some of the true friendships or lack thereof uh, that you're associating yourself with. But, uh, and, and just, I guess, finally, uh, <laughs> I know it's, it's so many, uh, tidbits here that I want to offer. Um, be graceful. My goodness. Be graceful and be kind. You know, assume 
until proven otherwise that folks' intentions uh, are good. Um, just be graceful and be kind. If we did that, that would be a good start. <laughs> Be but grace but, will be kind, man. Parent empathy, grace, grace. Uh, it it seems like it costs folks a lot these days, right? That it's very expensive to be uh, graceful. Yeah, but it's pretty pretty inexpensive to care and have empathy. I I couldn't agree more. Thank you again, Mark. This is a wonderful conversation, and I I can't wait to make a list of some other things that we should talk about but i wanted to say thank you for joining me today and hope that we we do get to that better place soon derek thank you so much uh we have to continue these conversations and and what better person to to have these conversations with than you so thank you for the incredible work thank you for the platform and just sharing these messages uh with our community because it is necessary that folks engage in these discussions, but actually, as we've talked about today, do the work. Excellent. That's beautiful. We'll talk again soon, Mark. All right. Take care, my friend.